Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. And now for today's scripture reading uh, from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6, as well as 16, and Genesis 38, 24 through 26. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. King David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I would give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the assistant pastor. Uh, pastor Michael is on study leave this week, and so he uh, left me Tamar. <laughs> We are in the middle of our Advent season, and so even though today is the first uh, true Sunday of Advent, the four weeks prior uh, to Christmas, uh, we've been looking for several weeks now at the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus. And so we've been answering this question, why uh, Jesus matters. And part of that is to look at his family tree. And most of us, if we looked at our family tree, there are uh, some heroes and some not so much. And so this is one of those not so much. Um, one of the things that you notice in Jesus' family tree from Matthew, that there are five women in the list. The reason uh, that is so unusual is that often in the ancient world, more than not, women were not listed in your genealogy. And so when they do appear, you have to ask the question, why these women? These five women, uh, Pastor Michael has already taken us uh, through uh, Rahab's story, uh, a prostitute who on behalf of God's people saved the spies, and from that uh, comes uh, uh, the seed that will be Jesus. There's also the picture that we looked at of Ruth, a, a, 
uh, a racial outsider who was brought into the people of God. And then we uh, looked at one that's not named other than Uriah's wife. We know that to be uh, Bathsheba. And we looked at Bathsheba and David and specifically their relationship. That is that David abused his power as king and had an affair with someone who... Uh, was related to one of his men, and when uh, this affair uh, resulted in a pregnancy, he covered it up by having her husband killed in a battle. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, Pastor Michael will help us look at uh, Mary, Jesus's mother, who is at the time of her pregnancy is an unwed teenager. Most people believe she's between 13 and 15 years old when that happens. But today, we're looking at another woman in the list, Tamar. And Tamar is a racial outsider. And so she also draws our attention, but she raises, her story raises a couple of questions that make particularly evangelicals uncomfortable. These questions have to deal specifically with injustice and human evil. That is, if God is sovereign, why would he allow this, this story to be part of Christmas? To be part of the story of the birth of a son, the, int the entrance of the incarnate Christ into this world. But what I love about our church is that we value questions and the people who ask them. And so one of the things that I've learned in ministry is that if you avoid the tough questions, it's usually because we're afraid. We're afraid that the questions might raise in us some doubts and questions about trust in uh, what Christianity teaches. But my experience is that if we ask the hard questions and that we honestly seek the answers, what truly happens is that we see the beauty and the glory of our pursuit. If we're just willing to ask the hard questions and honest enough to seek those answers. And so let's do that. We're going to focus on two of those. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, and I know a lot of people think that's a lot like watching paint dry. <laughs> and you're laughing because you just don't understand the beauty and the glory of baseball. It's the only sport where failure is success. Think about it. The best batter is hitting the ball about 30% of the time. Now, imagine if your employer said, you know what? You only have to be right 30% of the time. Wouldn't that be great? Think about a pitcher. He's paid millions and millions of dollars to make sure nothing happens during the game. <laughs> imagine at work, you sit down, and, and today your task is to make sure nothing happens. The definition of a perfect game in baseball is no hits, no runs, no errors. A perfect baseball game is where nothing happens. Now, you can't tell me that's beautiful. <laughs> but see, you never see the beauty and the glory unless you understand the game. And Christianity is like that. 
if you don't understand the beauty and the glory of it, then you can't see it. And you can't understand it. And so, this morning, I'd like for us to look again, one more time, at the family tree of Jesus, and specifically this woman, Tamar, and her story, her broken, sordid story. And now, a lot of us look at our family trees, and a lot of us refuse to look at our family trees, because we know there are people in the tree that we don't want that story to be part of our story. I was reading this summer this book, it's called The Children of Nazi, it's by uh, Tana Kransky, and she uh, traced the children of Mengele, Hess, uh, all the uh, uh, leaders, Goring and whatnot, after the war, and what happened to them. And what that she found is that there were a couple of them, and they tended to be the older children, they became their, great, their dad's greatest defender of the monstrosities that their dad committed. But most of the children, as they became adults, they changed their names and moved away from Germany because they were so ashamed of what their father had done. And so sometimes when we look at our family trees and we go back far enough, there are stories that are so sordid that we just assume nobody find them out or that we wish we could forget them. And so that's where we are this morning. In Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3 is our story this morning. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Who is Tamar? And who is Judah? What happened? What's their story? Why is it so sordid? And most importantly, why is it part of the story of Christmas? Why does it matter for us to know the story? This story is in one chapter in the entire Bible. It's Genesis 38. You can kind of move over there because that's where we'll be. We're going to leave here and go there. The natural question that, that this story uh, brings to mind is why would it be included in the genealogy of Jesus? Why this story? Because you're, you're cooking along in Genesis uh, with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and then you know there's 14 more chapters of Joseph. But right here in the middle of that is a story about uh, a foreign woman, a Canaanite named Tamar, and her in-law family with Judah. John Calvin, who lived 500 years ago, when he read this, he said this, at first sight, the dignity of Christ seems to be somewhat tarnished by such dishonor. Yet, it is the means by which man is saved. Therefore, here's the key, it rather speaks to his glory rather than distract from it. We don't tend to think of that, that the sordid story is actually the occasion for the beauty and the glory and the weight of Jesus' story. We tend to think of it as a distraction, Again, these two truths we're looking at is the depth of human evil, why it's there, and then secondly, why, why is there such links that God goes to 
to give us justice. Justice is a word that seems to be undergoing a redefining in our society today. Right now, people are co-opting that word justice for their own means or their own end, their own purposes. So let me give you a simple working definition. It's not mine. It's quite old. And it's one that if you trace it far enough back, you'll find it in the scriptures. And it's simply justice is giving someone what they are due, what they are owed. People have been ripping off this definition for thousands of years. They thought that Plato was the first, but no. He ripped it off right of the scriptures because God embedded it because it is his working out to give what is due, what is right, what is owed. So let's look at these two truths. The story of Tamar and Judah show us human evil. In this story, there are two main characters, Judah and Tamar. Uh, They both uh, 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 commit evil acts. Neither one are innocent. They both uh, make mistakes, and they are costly mistakes. And yet, God uses their mistakes to show his greatness. You might be asking, why? Why would God include the story of evil and injustice in his Christmas This is what another guy who lived 500 years ago said about it. His name was Martin Luther. He said, great saints must make great mistakes in order that God may testify to his great grace. That is, great saints make great mistakes so that God may demonstrate his great grace. Martin Luther isn't saying go and sin boldly so that you might see more grace. He's just saying that human evil in this world doesn't distort or distract his glory. They become occasions for it. They are places where his glory can be most clearly seen. First, Judah here, we're told where his heart is in the opening verse of chapter 38 of Genesis, where it says that he happened at that time uh, that Judah went down from his brothers. If you know what happened in 37, they just had sold Joseph into bondage. And then the very next thing that is said is that Judah had enough of it, and he left town. It says he left his brother, so physically he leaves the area. But there's also a spiritual running from God at this point. There's a guilt. There's an overwhelming sense of evil that he has already committed by, with his brothers, taking his one brother, Joseph, and selling him as a slave. Judah goes to this new land that he's not supposed to be in, and he marries a Canaanite woman named Shua when he knows full well that God has already commanded Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before him to marry within the family because it is from this family that he is going to create a nation, and from that nation is going to come this one person that saves the world. This is something that Judah grew up with and knew all about, and yet he's walked away from. And with this new woman, they have three sons. The first one that is born, his name is Ur, and Judah allows him to be the one who marries Tamar. Here's the connection to Tamar, another Canaanite woman. What's unusual is that we're not told much about Ur. Other than this, in verse 7, it says that Ur was so wicked 
that God put him to death. We have no idea uh, what Ur did, or it might have been a repeat offense. We have no idea. We just know that he was so wicked that his wickedness led God to have him put to death. When that happened, the second son, Onan, was obligated to marry Tamar, the widow. You see, God had placed within that ancient world a way for a widow to be redeemed. And what I mean by that is, in the ancient world, for someone to become a widow, she became more than not a destitute. If she had no children, particularly a male child, she would become a destitute. She couldn't return to her family. She couldn't have a means to take care of herself. And so God, in his graciousness, said, I will give you a kinsman redeemer. That is the nearest relative. It usually was a brother, a younger brother, who would marry you and produce a son. But that son would not be your son. That is the second uh, a husband. It would be the first dead husband's son, and he would get all of the inheritance that the first son would have received. And this was a way for the widow to be taken care of, and that their lineage would go on and on. And so this is what Onan was supposed to do for Tamar. Redeem her by giving her a child, and he refused. That is, he married her, but he refused to give her such a child. And because of that, uh, God had him too killed. And so, uh, son number one, Ur, he's gone. She is now widow for the second time because Onan is dead. But there's a third son. But he's too young. His name is Shelah. But Judah is a little concerned. I have a pattern here. Every son that I give this woman dies. And so I'm not going to give her this third son. You can understand a little bit of his perspective, but the reality is he still owes Tamar, a kinsman redeemer, a child, who would redeem her and give her a future and a hope because that's God's justice for her. She didn't deserve it. She's a Canaanite woman married into a Jewish family. It wasn't about her earning, and it was simply because it was God's grace, his provision for her and her future. And instead of Onan refusing her, now Judah refuses her. In fact, he comes up with a story. Why don't you go live with your dad? And when Sheila's a little older, he'll come and knock on your door and he'll marry you and give you that child down the road. Why don't you go home and we'll take care of this later? Judah has no intention of allowing Tamar to marry Sheila. Everyone in this story does human evil. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. It starts with 
Judah disobeying God by leaving the family and going down to Cana where he should not be, marrying people he should not marry. There's Ur, we have no idea what he did, but it was so bad that God took him out. There is Onan, who was supposed to bring justice and deny justice uh, to Tamar as a kinsman redeemer. And then we have Judah himself again as a full circle, refusing her justice. And so she is cut off. And so, before you become too sympathetic about Tamar, uh, Tamar begins to look what she is owed and says, I need to get what is owed me. I need justice, so I'm going to take things into my own hands. If the men don't give me what I deserve, then I will manipulate the situation. I will deceive Judah and get me that son. Will get me the future, what is promised me, what is owed me. Verse 14 tells us that Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and sets up a tent just outside of town in between uh, two towns that Judah, now his wife, has passed away, is traveling on business. And there he sees this woman on the side. And evidently, in the ancient world, this is how often prostitutes set up their business just outside of town. And they knew it by the tent. And we know that, that Judah doesn't recognize Tamar. We ha he has no idea it is Tamar. And that could simply be because she's completely covered in what the outfit that a prostitute would wear or it could simply be a place where he doesn't expect her to be because she's supposed to be home. She's supposed to be waiting for a Sheila. But there she is, doesn't recognize her. He stops and says, okay, well, let's bargain here. How much are your services? And, and she says, a goat will be fine. I have no idea how much a goat is worth. It's kind of like Pie Pie and Wendy, his friend. If you remember Wimpy, uh, Wimpy says, I'll gladly pay you f Tuesday for a hamburger today because we know that Judah does not have the goat. And so he says, I tell you what, I'll pay you later for the services today. And she says, hmm, that's not going to work. I kind of know you. You're not going to pay. So can you give me some collateral? And he says, okay, I'll, I'll give you uh, my signet ring, I'll, I'll give you my staff, and I'll give you my cord. And most people believe this is one thing that the cord is tied to with the signet ring that was used to identify himself. And so he says, here it is, I will have one of my servants bring you a goat later. And that's exactly what's happened. After uh, uh, services rendered, she uh, goes back home. She puts back on her widow's clothes. Judah goes home. He sends back his servant with the goat, and he can't find the prostitute. And so he comes back to Judah and says, I, I, I can't find her. And Judah says, no big deal. I got more signet rings, more staffs, and more cords. Let her have them. No big deal. Well... The next piece of news that we find out in this passage of, of Genesis 38 is that Tamar's pregnant. And word gets back to Judah that his daughter-in-law has shamed his family because she is pregnant out of wedlock. And so Judah, in his reaction, notice that Judah doesn't in any way see his own sin, his own human evil. He doesn't connect his children to the human evil that they've done. And we have that ability, don't we? To be blind to the things that we have done to the point that we need someone else to point them out graciously to us that we might repent, change. 
And so that's what happens is uh, Judah, rather than, than, than saying, you know, my, I'm no better than she, he says, she's worse than I am. How do we know that? He says to her, bring her out and burn her alive. That's in verse 24. The reason that's so startling is that's not what you did with adulterers. Adulterers were supposed to be stoned. He wants her to pay more. Because he believes she has brought shame upon him and his family, and ultimately, it's going to obscure his own evil if she's burned alive. Well, remember, Tamar was smart enough to get collateral. And so, with this uh, collateral, uh, when they began to uh, bring the sticks together for the burning, she says, well, look at the staff. The father of my child is my kinsman redeemer, and it's a staff with a cord and a signet ring. Go find out who these belong to, because this is my kinsman redeemer. And as soon as Judah sees these things, immediately Judah cries out, He knows that he is the father. He knows that he owed her. Because listen to what he says in in verse 26. Tamar was more righteous than I. Now, the word righteousness that is being translated there in verse 26 is the same word for justice. Judah is not saying that Tamar was more right than me. He's not saying Tamar was right and I was wrong. They're both wrong. They both committed evil acts. What he's saying is, is that her evil was more just than mine. In fact, her evil was to get justice, and my evil was to deny justice. Do you see that? That's what he's trying to get across here. Conservative commentators will look at this passage and they will look at what Rahab did, I mean, what Tamar did and what Judah did, and they see more beauty and honor and innocence in Judah. Liberal commentators will look at the same story and they will say that Tamar had to resort to this because she was oppressed, she had no choice. There are no innocent people in the story. Everybody in the story is guilty. Everyone has committed human evil. The difference that Judah recognizes is that my sin led to her sin and that her sin was because she was denied justice and my sin was to deny her justice. Those of us who have tasted grace those of us who have received God's grace and trust in him, have we denied justice to someone simply because their evil puts us off, makes us uncomfortable, we think is more grotesque than anything that we have done? Have you thought that their sin is too great to taste what you have eaten? God's mercy. Jesus didn't die for just respectable sins, but also for the most heinous evil humans can commit. No one is beyond God's grace.
Some of us have been spending some time with a ministry up in Harlem called Exodus Ministry. It's a ministry that, that seeks to serve a particular group of people in our community that are under cared for, formerly incarcerated men and women. That is, they've gotten out of, of prison and jail, and they need training, they need jobs, they need places to stay, they need food. And so part of looking at, at, at our brothers and sisters who have paid for their crimes, who have sought justice, or at least justice has made them pay, now are on the other side and now are looking for what does it mean to live, to flourish in our city? What will it mean for us to be part of men and women who were formerly incarcerated to flourish in our city? But this story is far more than simply the depth of human evil. There's also the length to which God brings justice. The story is more about than the shamefulness of evil. If that's all it is, then it's heavy, it's hard. There's no smile. But if you look at the length in which God brings grace... Back in Genesis 3.15, God said to Adam and Eve after their colossal failure that he was going to provide them a child that one day was going to make everything right, that was going to bring justice to all that is broken, that is going to make for, up for all of the losses. And so every man and woman, particularly every woman in the world from Eve on began looking for that child to come from her. In fact, every child could have been that child. And if one of the themes that you can trace through the Bible is that child. And when Adam, Abraham shows up and God calls him out of Ur, the city of Ur, he says, follow me. He says, I'm going to give you a nation. And from that nation is going to come a child that is going to take this world, this broken world, all that we have done to it, all the human evil, and make up for it and make it right, make it just. Now, the reason that's an incredible uh, promise is that at that point, Abraham was old and his wife was too old to have children. In fact, she laughs and then she has a son, Isaac, and he becomes that child and, and Isaac marries and has a child and his name is Jacob and Jacob marries and has two children and, and, and then comes this whole story. This whole incredible story of Judah and you, and you think, why is this story not about Joseph? Why doesn't Joseph's children appear? Because God takes in his infinite wisdom and grace... He takes the story, this broken, messed up story of Judah and Tamar where both committed human evil and puts them into his story. And from them comes the seed, the child, Perez. And then the rest of the lineage. Don't you see? We tend to think that the perfect being doesn't come from the backwaters of the Roman Empire in a failed nation state of Israel, in a little town of Bethlehem, he's supposed to come to Caesar's palace because that's how we would have written the story. With perfect ancestors, 
But instead, he takes all of our broken stories and makes them part of his son's story so that he can do this. It is from our broken world. He comes to save our broken world. Otherwise, he's not touchable. He's not identifiable. He's not uh, someone that we can understand. But when we see his world, it's like our world. And that's who he came from. That's why he's part of this incredible lineage and story of Christmas. Yes, there is terrible individual injustice. If you, if you can't see it, let me just give you a couple of pictures. There are young girls and boys that are stolen off the streets of our city and trafficked into a sexual industry that abuses them and leaves them destroyed. There are young children who grow up in homes where they're supposed to be protected by parents, but instead the parents abuse them. There are husbands who, rather than loving and treasuring their wives, they make them punching bags, convincing that nobody loves them or nobody cares about them. On our streets just a week ago, a 62-year-old man is beaten for sport by young boys. Human evil. What is God doing about that? But there's not just human, human individually. We can't just explain this away by explaining that some people are just evil. There's also a systemic evil that is deep in the heart of our world where there's mass incarceration and there's racism. There's a lack of opportunity in the poorest neighborhoods in our country. Failure of public education in some of our cities and some of our rural places Homelessness, at least among us, have least voice in our culture. Do we see the injustice? Ralph Ellison wrote a book in 1952 called The Invisible Man about the African-American experience in America in the midst of the injustice of the 1940s and 50s. And he wrote this statement. He said, can you see me? And so the question that Tamar asked as well as, can you see me? And the people who, who have experienced, and maybe it's you, individual injustices, or maybe you've been exposed to systemic injustice, is asking the question, can you see me? Can you see me? We may not see the injustice, but I can guarantee you there is one perfect being that does see every injustice he has not turned his face from human evil he has gone to great lengths to bring justice how he sent the only perfect being in the cosmos into our world as an illegitimate son from the backwoods of the roman empire into this world and he gave him a family tree filled with broken people many of whom who had done horrible acts themselves his family tree was profoundly flawed if god really wanted to make a difference don't you think he should have sent him to rome 
One more question and we're done. It's simply this question. Why can't God just forgive evil? Why can't he just do that and then we move forward? Because he's God, not human, alone. You see, human beings are the only beings that can take one attribute and deny it in order to emphasize and uphold another. We can love, but not stand up for justice. We can stand up for justice and not love. But the one thing that we struggle with is to do both. And God does both. And he does both perfectly. He holds both ends of his nature, and he holds them in perfect harmony. We know that because the greatest demonstration of that is the cross. It is upon the cross there where sin is ultimately paid for by his own son. He takes all of the punishment that is due human evil and he empties it in one moment upon his son. In fact, his son will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's at that moment that he receives all of the punishment that is due human evil. Why? So that he can love us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be his. He upholds both at the same time. I so much want the descendants of slaves to get their justice they are due. I so much want African Americans to get justice for the, for the centuries of oppression and injustice that they've endured and are enduring. I want Native Americans to get justice for what happened to them at the founding of our country. And for the suffering they continue to experience. I so much want justice for young girls and boys who are snatched off the streets and terrorized and victimized into our sex industries. I so much want justice for the least and most helpless among us. Their voices so silent, very young and very old. But they may not get, if we're honest, justice in this world. That does not mean that you and I are not supposed to work like hell for justice. It just means they may not get it here and now. But I promise you, there is one perfect being coming back that is bringing justice with him. And every tear will be made up for. The only perfect being was nailed on a beam, and there God brought justice. And he's coming back to bring justice to us. This is why Jesus matters at Christmas. This is why the only perfect being has Tamar and Judah in his family tree. They don't distract or obscure his glory. There are occasions for it. Just as your life and my life and the life among the least of us and the most among us are occasions for his glory. He came from such as these for such as these. The truth is the only kind of person in Jesus' tree are Tamar's and Judah's. And so if you're in Jesus' family tree, they're your family too. They are and we are occasions for his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the story of Tamar and Judah. It seems like something that is a blip in the story in Genesis and the greater story of the Bible when 
it is an illustration of the whole story, the whole beautiful story. Sometimes we miss that because we see so many trees and we miss the forest. That Jesus came because we were broken. And Jesus is coming again because our world is broken. There's so much human evil. The depth is so great. It seems on occasion to be an empty, deep abyss. And yet, Jesus is coming back. And he will right all the wrongs. We will be made whole. And we long for that day when everything in our society that seems upside down will be turned right side up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.